0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Rewind the tape. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, Well, my turn. Take three. Good evening, brothers and sisters. All right. See what happens when you mess with me? I'm easy to get off my edge. All right. Um Larry King, the famous interviewer on I was on CNN, I don't remember, but that famous interviewer who's who's passed now. But he was once asked who he would interview of anyone in history had he the choice. And his answer, according to the LA Times article I pulled up, he said, "I would ask him I'm sorry, he said I would choose Jesus Christ. Why? I would ask him if he believed that he was born of virgin birth. Because whatever the answer is changes or reinforces the world. That took me back when I first heard that. How can the virgin birth be that important? Is he exaggerating? Does the virgin birth really matter? Because, well, oh, hold. On. <laughs> because what, the the uh, if I measure its importance according to how many times I hear it taught and defended, I would say that we don't care about it. Yeah. So tonight, I'm sharing with you why the virgin birth matters, um, and I really appreciated digging into this um uh, because it was it was just stellar it was so worth it so i'm only going to share about 10% of all my notes with you um but that's okay cuz you guys will be thankful at the end like oh we didn't go an hour tonight hooray <laughs> now um with that said as well um i do think in our defense i think that we shy away from the virgin birth because it means we have to look at mary and If we've had a Catholic background that we are embarrassed of or don't like, or we don't like Mary worship, I know that's kind of common with Protestants, our attitudes there. Um, I get why sometimes we don't look at this because we just would rather not deal with it, right? Um, Is Mary worthy of admiration? As a human being, she is. Anyone who is worthy to receive Christ and who says yes to this hard calling, I think is an example of what we are meant to do in our lives. We are meant to say yes to whatever God brings and let him grow his work in us and bring it forth into the world. In that regard, we admire her. But I don't think we need to worship her as anything more than human. So there we go. Are we good to go forward? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the creeds that that we... Um, aren't as familiar with but the historic creeds of the church there's two major ones there's the apostles creed and the nicene creed they both affirm without blushing that the virgin birth is a big deal here's how the apostles creed puts it he was conceived christ was conceived by the holy spirit and born of the virgin mary how was he born by the holy spirit so what's the source the holy spirit is the seed and of the Virgin Mary, she is the vessel. The Nicene Creed says, For us and for our salvation, Christ came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Both of our historic creeds affirm what Matthew chapter 1, which we looked at some time ago, has told us. That it was the Holy Spirit who has conceived this work in Mary? Matthew tells us that when he says Matt, Mary got pregnant, and then Joseph is told that by the angel. Joseph, don't worry to receive Mary because what is in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in my preparing our Matthew sermons for church, which coincidentally is also my Bible college class starting next week. <laughs> It's kind of nice for once to be able to do one job. (laughs) Um, in, In my preparations for Matthew, I came across in a commentary some discussion about the virgin birth that really alarmed me. And then I reflected and thought, you know what? I actually was thinking the same thing not too long ago in my own life. So I think it's important to bring up. Our creeds affirm this. And yet many in Christianity today are saying, aren't we overdoing this a little bit? Here's what Frederick Dale Bruner, who does believe in the virgin birth, but also believes that maybe we are overemphasizing it. This is how he says it. His commentaries are excellent, by the way. It should be admitted that the believer, who in becoming a believer, has experienced a virgin birth through the miracle of faith. He and should have, therefore, little difficulty believing that there was a virgin conception of Jesus in the body of Mary. However, at the same time, one feels squeamish when some make so much of the virgin birth that the impression is left that unless Jesus had been born of a virgin, our salvation could not have occurred. To say this is surely to overdo a good thing. God is capable of appearing in history through the normal means of material intercourse. Well, yeah, of course he's capable. He's capable of doing anything, but he chose not to for very specific reasons. We'll keep going. He then says, oh, so he said, God is capable of appearing into history through normal means of marital intercourse. Yeah. The virgin birth does not seem necessary for God or for us, but it is an impressive doctrine. So we admire the doctrine, but we don't say it's necessary. The virgin birth does not seem necessary for God or for us, but it is an impressive doctrine enshrining the important evangelical truth that God can and in fact regularly does come to human life without the initiatives of human nature. That's true. He does come into our lives without human initiation, and that's a good point. But that's not to say that the virgin birth is simply a metaphor for other truths. He then um, he then closes this quote with uh, quoting another guy. He says, surely John Rice asserts too much in writing that all Christianity stands or falls with the doctrine of the virgin birth. Okay, so he's like, dude, we've taken this way too far. It's not that big of a deal. Calm down. You can or cannot believe in the virgin birth of Christ. And then he says that people who say that our our faith stands or falls on this doctrine take it too far. I, after looking at things, have concluded that these people are underplaying the virgin birth. Mm -hmm. They're saying maybe we're doing too much to it. And I'm saying we are doing not enough with it. And here's why I think that our faith stands or falls on the virgin birth. It's, it's not an issue of apologetics. Like we have to go defend this to the core. People are going to believe or not believe that. And it really comes down to can God create the world or not. Okay? We can leave that there. But what this does come down to is how Christ became incarnate is how we are saved. And that's what I want to take us through tonight. Um, what happens when we underdo rather than overdo? The, the, uh, virgin conception or the virgin birth of Christ. What happens when we underplay this and we don't talk about it? Well, heresy creeps up. That's what happens. So, um, I have three options on the board for us and I put them on the board so that you guys could see because they're, they're kind of big words. Orthodoxy is fine. Like we all understand, right? We are Orthodox Christians. We believe the true Christian way. That's what Orthodox means. It means a straight way. Um, but these other two, Nestorianism and Monophysitism, Monophysitism, there it goes. Uh, what are those? How many of you heard of these before? Monophys- Bible college people or who have graduated or, yeah, so seminarians and Tyler who reads all kinds of deep stuff. <laughs> okay, awesome. Um, <laughs> so here is what Orthodox Christianity teaches us. Christ is two persons in one nature okay he is Christ is two persons uh, I nope sorry other way other way. <laughs> it is a universal truth that when you write on a board and talk, you don't write well. Uh, to th- and by the way, who is who is disagreeing with me? Good job. Okay. Two. Uh, where was I? Natures in one person. We were two minutes away from people walking out on me. <laughs> Whew. Okay, um, here's how John of Damascus puts it. John of Damascus is in the seventh century, and he's a really interesting writer because what happens is, uh, Islam was taking, was beginning to spread rapidly. And he is writing in Syria, which ultimately becomes Islamic. Um, and he's writing sort of like as a last stronghold for the Christians there. And, uh, which means he's, he's pitted against another faith that has a kinda similar, and I say very kinda, Similar view of God, um, very kind of. Um, so he's, um, he's writing to write exactly what Christianity is in contrast to another faith, which really helps sharpen what we believe. So his works are really interesting in that light. And here's how he puts it. He says, the natures of Christ, natures meaning he's God and he's man. Those are two different natures, creator, created. They're two different essences, right? The two natures of Christ, although united in him, Are united without confusion. That means absorption. So if I was to mix um, Kool Aid and water, they they become absorbed and they become one drink, right? Um, But Christ's two natures come together and they become one, but not one is lost to the other. They don't get diluted, they don't get absorbed, they're still both fully 100% there. So he says the natures of Christ, although united, are united without confusion absorption. And although mutually imminent, that is the Greek word perichorosin, which is perichoresis. Perichoresis, you know, choreography is to dance. Perichorisis is to dance around. So he says they're mutually eminent. They're, very, they're mutually perichorison. That means they're living inside of each other and moving within like this. This is how they're two completely one yet separate at the same time without becoming the same thing. They're not blending. They're Christ's humanity and divinity are mutually indwelling each other. That's how he describes it. Um, So that they do not suffer. His natures do not suffer any change or transformation of one into the other. So that's what we believe. Christ is two natures, but he's one person. Well, we downplay this and we get the, the heresies that happened in the early centuries of Christianity. One of the biggest storms was in the fifth century, right after our friend Athanasius from two weeks ago. Um, so the first one that can pop up is Nestorianism. Now, you might be thinking, why do I need to know this? And why are we doing a history lesson? We're not. These are, these are popping up all the time. And I want us to see this, okay? So Nestorianism hmm, is this. Make sure I actually look this time before I make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Christ is um, uh, two natures in two persons two natures two natures in two persons now that's interesting so uh what ends up happening is that um there's a controversy about what do you call mary is mary the mother of god or is mary the mother of christ There was actually some controversy about what to call her, and this is actually really important. might sound like a squabble, but it's really important. If Mary is the mother of God, then her son, Jesus, is God. If Mary is the mother of Christ, then her son, Jesus, is human, who later becomes connected to God. Now, when that happens is a whole nother discussion. Does it happen in the womb? Does it happen at his birth? Does it happen at his baptism when he says, this is my son? Um, But the point is that she gives birth to a human who then becomes connected to the word and now is God and human. But the problem is you start with the human who then becomes connected to God. So now what you have is two natures. We have two people. You see that? There's a partnership and historianism. Okay, so you can lead you can get to this conclusion if you believe um that Mary conceived, not by the Holy Spirit, but by Joseph. Now, a lot of Christian scholars will try to argue that there's no reason for the virgin birth, that there's no reason that she and Moses, (laughs) she and Joseph didn't have normal a normal way of conceiving. But here's the problem. If Joseph is the way she conceives, then what does that make the child in her womb? What nature does it make that child? Human only. Um, so then this human baby, at what point does this human baby become God? Some, Yeah, obviously later. But here's the problem we're saying. The human becomes God. That's a problem because actually what we teach is God became human. And here's the other implication. If, if, if this baby became God at some point, then what does that mean for our salvation? We must become God. God. Or, or maybe more simply, we must find our own connection with God's person. So then that puts all the impetus on us to find a connection, as the child Jesus found a connection with the eternal word. So Nestorianism, as you can see, actually gets a little bit wonky and dangerous, and it can totally change our perspective of Christianity. Now, I believe that sort of our, our groups of Christianity, they're all about like self-improvement and self-help, um, sort of can fall into this trap a little bit that we're trying to make ourselves into God. And that, uh, I mean, they are not necessarily, they would never come out and say, here's my card, I'm an historian, call me when you want questions. Um, that's not quite it. we When we're ignorant of the development of our faith, or at least I should say the clarification of our faith, Uh, then we can easily fall into these things without realizing that we've talked about this thousands of years ago. Why are we talking about it again? (laughs) So um, that's why we need to know that. Okay, so the second one is monophysitism. Monophysitism. It sounds complex. Mono means one. Physi refers like physicality. And tism is just because you got to put an ism on the end of things, right? So this means one person. Okay. So here's what monophysitism is. Um. So Christ is one nature in one person. Okay, so this is also problematic. What this teaching says is that when 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 God came into Mary's womb, it overwhelmed the human nature of Christ. So basically, instead of having two natures that are united without absorption, one gets absorbed into the other and basically isn't there anymore. Uh, so what you have is you have no union or mutual indwelling of the human and divine in the person of Christ. Why is that important? Well, because if Christ was just God and there's no mutual indwelling of the human and divine nature, then that means you and I have no way of being united to the divine nature. We have no connection and no invitation to the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's because Christ comes from the Trinity and unites his nature to our nature that we have a way in to the fellowship of God. So monophysitism does not allow for this to happen. What would be instead is if Christ came just as God, then all he could accomplish is what only God can accomplish is that he can, uh, basically pardon our sins, but there's no way for him to heal our nature because he doesn't connect himself to our nature. We're just eternally like separated, but the sins might be forgiven because God can come and do that, but not healing our nature because he takes on our nature to heal our nature. Um, so what this would be, a way that this is often talked about, and I must confess, until I had to think about these things, I thought about these things a couple of years ago, but until I had to actually think about it, I, I probably fell more in the monophysitism viewpoint, and I think most Christians do, without realizing it. Uh, we know that Jesus is two natures, but we tend to overemphasize the God part, and we don't know what to do with the human part. Um, and here's how it's usually thought about, and this is ancient, I mean, people talk about this for a long time, is that Christ came... Not from Mary, but through Mary. Christ came through Mary. What does that mean? It means that she's a conduit. She's a channel. She's simply a, a way in which this body that Christ takes comes into the world. So I'll come in a normal way. But what happens is you're, you're developing this aspect where Mary's just simply this bypass. So what that means is Christ's body came from somewhere else, and then Mary was the means of getting to earth. That means then that the body he inhabited was not a holy human body. And by holy, I mean completely human body. Because his body came from somewhere else. That's seeing Mary as a conduit. What, what Christianity teaches is that Christ came into Mary and from, not through Mary, but from her flesh, created a body for himself so that his body is in every single means, the same exact substance as our bodies are. This is how John Chrysostom put it in the fourth century. Um, if Christ did come as a con- through Mary as a conduit, then he has nothing in common with us, but that flesh he put on is of some other kind and not of the same mass which belongs to us. Gregory of Nyssa, also the fourth century, said that which is not assumed is not healed. So he was saying that in reference to the incarnation. If Christ did not assume our entire nature, then our entire nature is not healed. He became man in every single component. Of course, he didn't sin, though. So he had that on him. But He took on our entire nature, even our will. But the will of God within him and the will of man within him, the will of God always won, which is why he's different than we, because our will often wins out over God's will. So this is why we reject monophysitism, because uh, if he just came as God, there's no hope other than waving as one and saying, Sin be gone. But if you were here two weeks ago when we looked at um, the meaning of the incarnation, he did not come. Just to cleanse us from our sins, he also came to heal the human nature because sin corrupted our nature. Sin made it so our nature cannot commune with God because there's corruption. So he came to take sin away and to repair our nature so that our nature can, as we prayed earlier and as 2 Peter says, we can partake in the divine nature. This is what communion Union and abiding in Christ means is that we participate in the nature of God as humans. And we get to do this forever. How much of the divine nature can you participate in? Can you forever participate in all of it? We have an eternity to continually grow in our participation of God and never reach the end. It's going to be eternal progression. Tell that to the liberals. <laughs> Sorry if you are a liberal. I just mean this is better progression than your version. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to tip any cards or which side I'm on or whatever. Um, The new... uh, Okay. So uh, here we go. What we need to understand about the virgin birth, because these two views do not allow... Only the orthodox view allows for a new creation. If the virgin birth is the work of procreation, meaning Joseph and Mary... If it's the work of procreation, then our salvation is not the work of new creation. It has to be a new creation or it's not salvation. This is what Athanasius of Alexandria said. He said uh, he formed his own body from the virgin. He formed his own body from the virgin. And that is no small proof of his Godhead. Since he who made that body was the maker of all else. If the creator comes into Mary's womb, he can very well create a body for himself from the material there. That's what Athanasius is saying. So we have a new creation. This is not procreation. It's not just normal life coming to being. This is God's life being made into a human life. And that's what we get to receive because of the virgin birth. Uh, so therefore, we need to see that the Holy Spirit created Christ, uh, created Christ's body, I mean, the <laughs> Holy Spirit, not create Christ, the Holy Spirit created Christ's body from The body of Mary from her flesh. John, John of Damascus, puts this beautifully when he says, "The very mother of God, in some marvelous manner, was the means of fashioning the Framer of all things. Mary became the maker of the Maker, because he uses her body to make his body. Isn't that wild?" Uh, In some marvelous means, she was the means of fashioning the former of all things and of bestowing manhood on the God and creator of all who deified the nature that he assumed. That's hard for us because we get tripped out because of Mormonism, but don't let Mormonism subtract your faith. Um, He deified our nature, he says. So when God enters... When God, the divine nature, enters into the human nature, the human nature is now deified. It's now partnering with God. It doesn't make us God. We're still created beings. But we now have that partnership and that union. What a beautiful thing that he does in coming to us through the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. Or from the Virgin Mary, to be more precise. Uh, By taking Mary's flesh and uniting it to God, Christ recreates our nature to share in God's nature. So, like, Christ takes Mary's flesh, and then when he puts that flesh on, it's now connected to God, and so that's what heals us. This is why our natures now can commune with God. So, um, I have, um, this is my last quote for you guys, and then we're going to wrap this up. Uh, it's, it's a slightly longer, but this is gold. This is Cyril of Alexandria. Not Athanasius of Alexandria. It's the next guy after him. Cyril of Alexandria, the next bishop of Alexandria. Notice Alexandria is a pretty important place in those years, right? Cyril of Alexandria, who is involved in defending the virgin birth. Uh, He even went to a church council and had this thing. But here's what he writes. Why did the word, remember the word refers to Christ. Why did the word, who is God, make a virgin, the mother of his own flesh, with a conception straight from the Holy Spirit. Why did he do this? Here's why. He says, The Son came, or rather was made man. Notice his carefulness, not to say he just came through Mary. He came, or rather was made man, in Mary, uh, in order to reconstitute our condition within himself. In order, in other words, to heal our nature within Him. This is why he himself became the first one to be born of the Holy Spirit, I mean, of course, after the flesh, so that he could trace a path for grace to come to us. He wanted us to have this intellectual regeneration and spiritual assimilation to himself, who is the true and natural son, so that we too might also be able to call God our father the natural son comes and makes this path by uniting his nature to ours so that we can also call god our father this is why we can pray our father in heaven it's powerful when you see that all because the virgin birth is what really begins this path for us to pray that um where am i oh yeah so we can call god our father instead of adam who was our father brothers and sisters This cannot happen if Joseph was the means of conceiving Christ or if Mary was simply a conduit for him to come into the world. This can only happen if Christ is two natures united in one person without absorption or confusion or distortion. So here's what this means for us. A full embrace of the virgin birth can correct some practical mistakes we make in living our Christian life. I've alluded to these already. We'll make these clearer. So, Nestorianism. How do we practice Nestorianism? We practice Nestorianism when we believe that God must be found. When we believe that God must be found. Remember, Nestorianism is two natures in two persons, which means the human Jesus had to find a connection with the eternal word to be Christ, right? So that means when we live in such a way that we must find a connection with God, then we are practicing Nestorianism. Christ is already unified with us because he came into the world. We need not go on a quest of earning his respect or earning his attention or crying out louder or maybe when we gather, he'll show up. It's the reverse. Christ has been preparing a, a table in our hearts for us to commune with him. He's prepared a table before us here, before any of us conceived of should we go to church today. He's been here inviting, welcoming, and hosting us, and he is that way all through life. When Christ came, he didn't just come as like a visitor among us. Like, I'm not really of you. I'm just here, but so you can see me. No, he came as us. So he's literally God with us is what the angel told Joseph. He shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, among us, one of us, because he took our nature. God is not something we must find He has found us. Now, some of us, some people in the world have not acknowledged that God has come to us. They need to wake up to that. But we wake up, God is already awake watching over you. When you pray, he's already there. You're simply turning yourself to who he is in you. Okay? We don't need to find him. He's there. So our aim in our Christian life is not to feel emotion for God. Now, I realize that when I said that, it didn't sound the way I meant it on paper. <laughs> um, you can feel emotion for God. and I'm glad that he gives us joy. But we can't be rooted in, I must feel a certain way to affirm that I connected with God today. Because our feelings are fickle. And sometimes God withdraws what we feel about him a little bit. So we learn to walk, as C.S. Lewis said, on our own two legs. And some of us know what that dark night of the soul is or that feeling like he's absent. He's not. It's not because you need to go find him again. It's because he's intentionally decided to grow you up in a season. And then the season to come is going to be rich and sweet. Uh, Go see our Song of Solomon series. We did a message on that. And it was probably worth your time if you're more interested in that concept. Um, Song of Solomon. Um, Where was I? Yeah. Oh. Oh. We don't need to, we don't need, our aim is not emotion. Our aim is not to feel connected with God. Because then what you do is you go on a pursuit of feeling that. And then you're on a pursuit of finding God. That's Nestorianism. We must establish deep in our hearts that he is here. And whether we feel it or not, we seek him. Or turn to him to be more proper in this dialogue right now. Um... So that means I don't stop praying because it's not doing anything for me. That's not why he he didn't say, pray so you can feel better about yourself. (laughs) That's not why we pray. We pray to commune with the God who's there. That's why we do it. So I never stop to ask, is the way I'm praying entertaining me today? (laughs) When I say the Lord's Prayer for the 1,000th time in my life, I'm not asking should I change it up? I mean, maybe sometimes you do ask that, right? That's fine to do. But I'm not asking like, is this really boring me today to say this again? No, I see it as a pathway to communing with God. I'm not asking how do I feel about this? I'm, I'm doing it because I'm faithful to the God who's here. So that's, that's one practical implication of this. So don't be an historian, or don't be someone who thinks God must be found. Second, how do we practice monophysitism? How do we practice that today? <laughs> this is the practice that God must be appeased or pleased. Mm-hmm. If Jesus was one nature in one person, being God, but not human, then that means he could not connect our nature with his nature. All he could do is die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. But there's no healing happening. There's no connection. We have no means of connecting to God because Christ never connected with us. He just came to forgive and cleanse. If that's all that's happened then and we don't understand that Christ is actually in the business of healing us so that we can be more connected to God, then what ends up happening is we live a Christianity that's obsessed with justification by faith, that's obsessed with, I must have my sins cleansed in a certain way, that's obsessed with always wondering, have I sinned my way out of the kingdom? I need to come down for another altar call or I need to confess this again so I can be forgiven. It's living with this fear and this obsession over our sin. And I know this, at least, maybe you just think I'm crazy, but I'm speaking out of experience. I remember my younger years as a Christian was always this concern with, am I forgiven? Brothers and sisters, that's not a question. God freely and readily forgives. He is, that's what he does. Christ shows us that he's done that. But one of the things we must not miss is that he also comes to heal our corruption so that our nature can be risen up to where he made it so that it can, like the Garden of Eden, walk with God. We're not in the business of pleasing him and being afraid all the time. We are actually rather seeking to be healed. So let me just say this clearly. You're forgiven. Stop asking if you are. What we are actually after, we're not after sin management. We're after healing. So when we talk about the importance of prayer or coming to church or fellowshipping with other Christians or fasting or any other Christian discipline or exercise, what we're after is the healing of our nature to be stronger in its communion with Christ. Because that's why he came to heal us so we practice these these spiritual practices that he gave us to continue healing. It's like fasting and prayer and giving our balms for our souls that our natures can be healed. That's what these are. We don't have to go around seeking ways to please him. If you're here tonight to please him, I'm sorry. You just walked into a trap. (laughs) We should be here to commune with him. So our aim is not sin redemption. That's been accomplished. Our aim is unification. So brothers and sisters, to put it one more step, a little more boldly, because we just read an old church father who said this, our aim is deification in God. Deification in God. To be super and obnoxiously clear, you will not become God. (laughs) Deification in God means my nature is fully communing and becoming one with his nature. Christ became that so that we can also become that. This is our new aim. And we must outgrow the older aims. We must start pursuing why we were made and why he came. Because this is what the virgin birth affirms. And we take this out, we can be left to, I, I think, honestly, this is where we are as a whole in our culture. Christianity's sort of practicing historianism and monophysitism because we've stopped emphasizing the important doctrines, especially the virgin birth, because frankly, we're embarrassed by it. We are fully embarrassed by the virgin birth. You can't prove it, and everyone scoffs at it. But if God, if your God can't do that, I'm worried about what God you're worshiping. He obviously can't save you or change you or transform you. We can abide in Christ because he is human. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Why can the branches connect to the vine? Because they're the same substance. He's human, we're human. But in connecting, we also bear fruit. How can we bear fruit? Because he's God and he can make us more than we are. This is what abiding means. Let's abide. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.